I, I wanted to do a panel discussion on apologetics. And uh, so what I've done is I've invited three full-time pastors to come. You probably know them. You, you recognize them, I hope. Uh, but in case you don't, I'm just going to give a brief introduction. So Pastor Brian Hughes has been uh, a pastor for 35 years, Brian, is that right? 35 years here at Grace. Uh, John, and, he, and he is over, uh, he's, the, he's our main preaching pastor, so he's what you'd maybe say a senior pastor. John Montoya, uh, how many years, John, have you been the high school pastor? 15, okay. So John uh, um, is a former UFC champion. Uh, ultimate fighting champion, and he became a pastor, though, after that with high school students. Fifteen years he's been doing high school ministry. And then, Matt, how many years now have you been at Cross Life? I uh, came on staff in the summer of 2013. Okay, so 13, that's about uh, almost six years. So what we have is you've got a senior pastor, then uh, 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 the guy who's over college ministry, and then the guy who's over high school ministry. And so we're kind of, we're kind of uh, over the whole spectrum of ages um, in particular. And what I wanted to know is how do they answer the, the main apologetic questions that come up. And so for the next 45 minutes or so, what we're going to do is I'm going to start with the two questions that I was most curious about for them, and then we're going to do Q&A. And, and just so everybody knows, for, there are a couple people who don't want to be, have their pictures taken and be on camera and things. We're, we're, we're live streaming this. And so uh, I didn't tell you guys that, but yeah, we're going to live, we're live streaming it. But uh, when we get to that part, uh, any, any apologetics kinds of questions, and in particular, maybe questions that you yourself kind of wrestle with, struggle with, how do, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know about this, how do we know this, or how, how do we understand this? Or apologetics questions that you hear other people in your evangelism, you know, that you hear, hear other people asking you, what's the culture asking and, and so we'll get an opportunity to ask them, how would, how would these men, how would these pastors uh, answer those questions? So uh, let me pray, and then we'll begin with the first one. Father, thank you so much just for the opportunity to get here, uh, to be here and get to do this. It is such a privilege to be able to think about your, the, the Bible, to be able to think about you, and to be able to, to even over the next 45 minutes, I ask, be better equipped to defend uh, Christianity. We know and we declare as a group that it is true, your word is true, and that everything in it is absolutely true, objectively, not, not because we think it is or not uh, uh, it's just merely true for us, but that it is true objectively. Uh, Father, I pray you'd bless the next 45 minutes, uh, give uh, good questions, clear answers, and help us to better interact with the world as we try to reach it for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Pastor Brian, may I start with you? Sure. First question would be, in your years of ministry, what is the most frequently asked apologetics question, and, and how do you answer it? It's probably um, between two, uh, and they're closely related. One is, how do we know that Christianity is the right religion? I mean, there's Islam, Buddhism, all of these religions out there. How, how can we be sure of that one, but probably more than that one, and it, it's very closely related, is how do we know that the Bible is true? Because every religion has its book. Islam has the Quran, you know, and so how do we know? You can understand why people wrestle with that, because if we can't start with the foundation, we can't go anywhere. So I would say that's probably the most commonly uh, asked question, and 
the, the answers I give are as follows. Uh, one of the things I will often ask someone to do or encourage them to do is there's a, a little, little book by a pastor named Erwin Lutzer, a little paperback book called Seven Reasons Why You Can Trust the Bible. And it can answer it far more thoroughly than you can do in a sound bite, you know, when you're just trying to say for these two or three reasons. So, And it's not a big book, but it's just one that I think if this is an area of interest for you or you, you're going to get asked this question, to have that in the back of your mind. That's a really helpful little tool, uh, not thick. It's not a big voluminous thing that you would give someone, but it, it answers the question of uh, how do we know we can trust the Bible? Seven reasons why you can trust the Bible. But some of the ones that I tend to mention uh, are probably the very strongest argument for the reliability of the Bible is fulfilled prophecy. And just try to show people over and over again how God would say something 150 years in advance or 300 years in advance. Or in the case of Daniel 9, which is a, just a monumental prophecy about the very day that the, the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem and present himself 483 years in advance, and it happened to the very day. So I just talk about the fact that no other book has that type of accuracy of, of be, having a prediction made and then that coming to fruition or be, be fulfilled. Uh, closely related to that, uh, I will often talk about the historical and scientific accuracy of the Bible. The Bible's not a history textbook. That's not its purpose. It's not a science textbook. That's not its purpose. But every time the Bible speaks about something historical or scientific, it, it, it has either been proven to be true or it is proving to be true. And what I mean by proving to be tree, true is that you, you know that archaeologists are continuing to dig and they're continuing to make discoveries, etc. And so these discoveries, my, my attitude has always been let them dig. We don't have anything to fear. We don't have anything to be afraid of or be concerned about because if a person's willing to be objective with the evidence, now, of course, that's a whole other issue sometimes in archaeology or science or any field is, is, uh, is the person willing to be honest and objective with the evidence. But point being that the historical and scientific accuracy of the Bible just has pr been proven to be true and continues to be proven to be true. Now, those are just a couple. I may mention, you know, a half a dozen other, others. I'm, I think John and Matt probably have some others that they use to, to answer that question. But that, that's, that's probably the most asked question that I get. How do we know the Bible is true? And those are the two sort of pieces of evidence that I start with, the fulfilled prophecy, historical, and scientific accuracy of the Bible. John Munn, in your high school ministry... You know, when you got young guys, young gals coming up to you asking, asking questions, what's the most yeah. frequently asked apologetics question? You know, it's funny, Danny, because uh, Matt and Brian and I got together before this about uh, before this meeting or before this Q and A about an hour ago, and said, "Hey, what's your answer?" They were all the same. Is the Bible reliable? So, uh, so maybe I could just piggyback on that because it is just the most common uh, issue. That's that's something on on people's minds and and young people's especially as well. Um, is like Brian said, I, I would start with prophecy as well, uh, and, and history. Uh, I was, I don't know if you guys realize this, but there's over 25,000 historical finds related to people, places, and events in the Bible. Not one has contradicted scripture. Um, if you're wrestling with that, just put Israel on your bucket list in life because I was there last fall, Matt's taking a team with Brian this spring, and, and it's literally flooded with archaeological finds that prove the accuracy of Scripture. Here's just an example. 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 20, um, talks about this tunnel 
that was built by Hezekiah. And they knew the Assyrians were on their way in. And usually in those ancient wars, what you wanted to do is we wanted to um, sort of surround the city and block the water supply from going in, the food from coming in. And, and Hezekiah knew that. And uh, so what did he do? Well, he knew the Gihon Springs was outside of the city walls on the eastern side. So he had this tunnel built. And it goes all the way into the southern part of the old city and, and um, into the Pool of Siloam. And in 1625, that tunnel was discovered. And if you go to Israel today, guess what? You can walk right through Hezekiah's tunnel. That's just one example of thousands. Uh, I remember for years um, just following different arguments as far as crit from critics about the Bible. For years, doubt, uh, critics doubted the existence of Pilate. They said, listen, Pilate didn't exist. Of course, you guys all know who Pilate is. He's a prominent figure in the, in the Gospels. He was the one who condemned Jesus to crucifixion. They said he doesn't exist. Well, that was true until last century they discovered a stone in, which is located in Caesarea by the sea. You could go there today and see a replica of it with Pilate's name inscribed in it. And, of course, that quieted the doubts and the critics on that issue. And, again, you just go around uh, Israel, and it just, it just screams that the Bible is true. Uh, fulfilled prophecy, of course, is another one, like Brian pointed out. Here's, here's just one to put in your, your little tool belt with fulfilled prophecy. Psalm 22, fascinating prophecy. David predicts that the Messiah would be pierced in his hands and his feet. Psalm 22, I think it's verse 16, talks about that. The amazing thing about that is that crucifixion wasn't a form of punishment for another 800 years later until the Romans came into play. And so it's not like David was looking around and seeing all these men being crucified and saying, hey, that's going to happen to the Messiah one day. It was, it was totally foreign to his world, and yet you fast forward the tape to Matthew chapter 27, 800, over 800 years later, and it says that Jesus was crucified, pierced in his hands and his feet. And so I think those two are, like Brian said, and I would maybe add just a uh, potentially a, a couple other arguments, of course, textual attestation. Listen, there's no other ancient writing who has more manuscripts in the Bible compared to any other ancient writing whose works isn't questioned. I mean, you look at Homer's Iliad, something like 600 manuscripts. Nobody questions Homer's Iliad if it's true. Uh, Thucydides' history, there's something like eight manuscripts. Nobody questions Thucydides' history. The Bible literally has thousands of manuscripts. So that we're able to look at, you know, compare and piece together through uh, uh, textual criticism all these manuscripts to find out, hey, this is the plausible reading. And some of those are, manuscripts are separated by hundreds of years, and yet you compare them, and they say the exact same thing. And so I think textual support. Here's another one. It's just being a high school pastor. It's just, you just kind of are drawn to <laughs> some of these. But just the embarrassing stories in Scripture. Listen, the New Testament writers would not have included all of these embarrassing stories about some of the key Christian leaders if they weren't true. I mean, think about Peter. I mean, he denied the Lord how many times? Three times before the Lord's death. That doesn't look very good uh, as far as the disciples go. Matthew records even about himself. Matthew chapter 26 says that uh, on the night before Jesus' crucifixion, all the disciples fled. And that doesn't look very good on Matthew. And so there's no way that, that even think about the resurrection, you know, the resurrection and um, you know, who was at the tomb when the resurrection, you know, uh, on Sunday? It was the women. The men were cowardly. That doesn't look very good on the disciples. So there's no way that the New Testament writers would have included all of those stories if they weren't true. And, and so I think those are just a, a few arguments that come to mind as far as demonstrating the reliability of Scripture. Um, there's some others as well. But Matt, anything to add to that? 
Yeah, Danny, could you state the question one more time? Just yeah, on yeah. <clears throat> well, and, and, and just to thanks, Pastor John, for that. P Pastor Matt, you know, is over Cross Life Ministry, and so MSU students often will bring their skeptical friends to Cross Life on a Thursday night and then bring them to Matt since he's the pastor, and, and that's often how our culture works, and say, so Matt, the question is, what's the most frequently asked apologetics question that you hear, you know, on Thursday nights in your ministry? Yeah, I, I appreciate uh, Brian and John's answers. I think talking about the Bible is is certainly a, a prevalent question. Um, you know, another another route I could go would be to talk about evolution. I think, uh, especially for MSU students, they're they're getting it all the time. Even uh, I'm talking with Derek Marks. Even in he's an English literature major, and he can't escape uh, the the liberal worldviews coming into that class. And it's nothing to do with science or biology. But, but the place I'd probably go, Danny, as the most prevalent right next to this question would be, how do I know Christianity is true? And, and specifically, why should I give my life to follow Jesus? How can I trust that this really is the true uh, record or the, you know, the true um, way to salvation that it's worth giving up my life for? And so I spend a lot of time uh, really trying to compel students to give their life to following Jesus. And apologetics, I, I view as a tool in that evangelism conversation. So for example, uh, even if they're a little bit skeptical of what maybe the Bible says about Jesus, I want to get them in the Gospels learning and just experiencing what Jesus did and what he said. Uh, interestingly, the, the Gospel of Matthew is structured in such a way that Matthew has put together discourse followed by validation. Teaching followed by proof. And so Jesus will instruct for a while, and then he'll go and he'll do a miracle to prove that he has the authority. Uh, this is true in a lot of Gospels, but for example, in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, you have the paralytic man being lowered through the ceiling, right? And what does Jesus say there? Do you guys remember? He, he's going to heal this man, right? But he says, what's easier to do, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, grab your pallet, and walk? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. But then he says, so that you will believe that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, I say to you, get up your pallet and walk. The man gets up and walks out. So uh, just even little stories like that, looking at how Jesus did miracles to affirm who he was and to affirm his message, yet then looking at what are the things that he said. And I think apologetically, Danny, just looking at uh, the several I am statements through the Gospel of John, John said in John 20, 31, I'm writing this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's entire Gospel is an apologetic of Jesus as both God and Messiah, and he's writing that for a purpose. So I want to get them into the Gospel of John and get them encountering uh, who Jesus was, what he said, what he did to validate who he was. And then I think you're left with this conclusion that you either have to believe, you know, the old uh, adage that whoever the evangelist was, maybe Ray Comfort or someone before him, you, you have to conclude one of three things about Jesus if you get to know him and what he did. You either have to say, A, this guy's a lunatic. He, he was insane. He was literally crazy. B, he's a liar. He deliberately deceived people. He, he had a scheme and a plan that he persuaded 12 others to believe in, uh, and, and then thousands after that. He was the best liar probably this planet has seen, if that's the case. Or three, is that he's the Lord. He is the God of the universe. He is the one whom he said he was, the Son of God. He is the deliverer uh, of, our, of our sins, the only way to heaven. John 14, 6, Jesus made the claim, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. 
And so that's an exclusive claim to say, uh, sorry, Oprah, but your theology of God on top of a mountain and there's many paths, uh, it doesn't work. It's not true. One of the paths is saying I'm the only path, so you, you have to rule that out at that point. And so I think you, 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 know, you, put, the, you put it in the, the lap of the skeptic and you say, now that you've seen what has gone on here, you have to conclude, which are you going to say? And I would compel them to believe the, the third option, that Jesus is the Lord. And then I was thinking about this, Danny, just to close up my answer here. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the, the resurrection, right? I want to I take him to the death on the cross, but also the resurrection. First of all, in 15, uh, 3 through 4, or 3, 4, and 5, he says this, I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. And he's talking about the gospel, according to verse 1. And then he states three things, that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised according to the scriptures. So I think... From an apologetic standpoint, any apologetics that has to do with the resurrection, which I know you teach in your class and talk about a lot, they are, are intimately connected with the gospel. In other words, the resurrection and the defense of it is not a side issue. It's not a tertiary matter. It is central to the gospel, according to 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 3, 4, and 5. And Paul says, hey, at the end he says, if in, if, if in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so he makes this whole argument based on the veracity of the resurrection. So that I, w- I would say in addition to this question, it would be, yeah, why should I follow Jesus? And then apologetics come into that persuasion, I think. Thanks, Pastor Matt. Um, Pastor Brian's similar question, the first one had to do with frequency, what's the most frequently asked. What is the hardest question that you've been asked in your 35 years of ministry, uh, and, and how did you go about answering it? Uh, the, the hardest question uh, that you get asked, I think, in, in the area of apologetics is always related to the, pro- somehow related to the problem of evil. If God is, you, you, you know, there's people will ask you like this. If you say God is sovereign, God is all-powerful, God can do anything, God is good, God loves people, that doesn't seem to square with what we know goes on on planet Earth. Why then are women raped and children murdered in the womb? And you just, I mean, go down the list, the suffering that is experienced here on planet Earth. And and there are answers, and I'll get to that in just a second. So there are answers. But I guess what I would encourage you to be careful about is not to be so quick to give answers. Because a lot of times when people use that objection or ask that question, it's, you know, sometimes it's just a straw man they're trying to, to, to throw up. But you need to be sensitive and try to discern if there's hurt behind that. Because just giving a pat answer isn't going to address that hurt. So I, I think now this is a passage out of Romans 12. It's not an apologetic passage, but Paul does remind us in Romans 12 to weep with those who weep. So before you give an answer, make sure you weep with people. If not literally, at least that you enter into that so that you don't just, like a machine, rattle off your answer on, you know, why? It, what about the problem of evil, et cetera, you, you know. You, you can win the argument and lose the battle if you just plow through people with, with an answer. But that is a question. And frankly, I would say this. As much as I've read on this subject and as much as I've studied on this subject, I have the same question. I still, from an experiential standpoint, 
I, I understand the plan of God that he, he in, his, in the eternal plan of God that he, I'm going to use the word had to, but had to create creatures, i.e. angels and humans with genuine human volition. Otherwise, the whole thing's a farce. I mean, if he just created angelic beings and human beings with no genuine volition, that we're all just robots, we're all just machines, it's just a big joke. Why, why even carry out a, 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 a whatever it's going to be, 6,000, 8,000-year plan? Because it, we all know where it's going to end, because everyone's pre-programmed as a machine. So I understand that, you know, from a philosophical, theological standpoint, that Creatures had to be made with genuine human volition to make choices. Thus, Satan made a choice to rebel and drew a third of the angels with him. Adam and Eve chose to rebel. And, I, you know, so I get that. But it's still, and I, can, I, I will say to people, I can still relate to what you're wrestling with because the plan is perfect. God's, there's no question about God's plan. But the plan really hurts. I mean, it does. I mean, if you, if you live much of life at all, you are going to yourself, I don't want this to discourage you, but you, you know, it is the grace of God that he doesn't tell you sitting here today what your future holds. Because some of you are going to walk through some horrific experiences in life. And if you don't, you will engage with people who do or are walking through horrific experiences in life. And because of that, we should never minimize that. And I find myself asking the same question. Okay, Lord, I get the plan. The plan is the best plan. You know, theoretically, God could have had a dozen plans. He could have created uh, a, a plan that Satan and angels have genuine volition, and they're going to fall, but humans won't fall. Or the other way around, where uh, humans fall, but angels don't fall. And, or any combination. The combination that God ordained is the best combination for his glory in our good there's no doubt about that but it does not still do away with the legitimacy of the intensity of the pain that people experience in life so i find myself wondering the same thing sometimes okay lord i get your plan it is the best plan but it at times seems so excessive it seems so extreme when you see someone going through something and then they're down and they get kicked while they're down. Then they get trampled while they're down. And then they get, it's just one hurt after the other. And it just seems to never end. I don't mean minimal hurts. So that is clearly the, the, the most difficult problem that you have to face. And, and you, you have to walk through that, I think, like what I was just saying with people, that, that God is good. God is powerful. God could have done any number of plans, but think of the accusation that God would have opened himself up to if he had made us with no genuine volition. And then, therefore, uh, everybody follows and loves God, but it's just a farce because everyone's just a machine or a robot or et cetera. So you, you have to walk with people through that and also remind them that even though God is sovereign and has ordained this plan, the Bible is very careful. It does state that, but it is very careful to protect from accusing God for being the author of evil. Satan brought sin into this universe, and then Adam and Eve brought it into our race. And so we wrongly blame God when we do blame God for it. Because the Bible is clear where it comes from. Now, again, the Bible doesn't back away from the fact that God in his sovereignty ordained this plan. He created Satan knowing he would rebel. He, and he knew all the pain. That is why Jesus is called in the book of Revelation the lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. 
Because God knew that when he created this planet and laid the foundation of the world, he knew it would cost his son his life, and he would cost himself his son's life. So he knew all of that, and it was part of the eternal plan. None of it takes God by surprise. God's never, you know, wringing his hands in heaven like, I didn't see this one coming. I had no idea this was going to happen. It's all ordained by God, and it is a good plan. It's the best plan, but it does not do away with the reality intensity the hurt. So that's typically the way I try to walk with someone through that and talk about it and, and hold that balance between, yes, sovereignty of God, but not, not in any way minimizing the legitimacy, the, the realness of, of pain and suffering on planet Earth. Thanks, Pastor Brian. Pastor John, same question. What's the hardest question that your guys and gals come to you with? Yeah, I had a hard time thinking through what was the most difficult one um, related to apologetics or other issues that come up, questions related to practical ministry. Um, uh, I did think about even the one that Brian relayed just now, um, which I appreciated, Brian, just your explanation there, because I, do th I can think of scenarios in life when you're working with people and, and people who are very theologically accurate on that issue but end up running over people who maybe are grieving because of... They're just not lack the sensitivity. So appreciated your your insight there. Just a couple questions, just common ones. I think just going back to potentially maybe a little less common than the one I touched on last time. One being uh, just the question about absolute truth. Is there absolute truth? And and or maybe from the critic, there is no absolute truth. And how do you how do you sort of wrestle through that one? And obviously that's often an objection to scripture, which says John fourteen six, I am the way. Jesus said the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You have the statement in Acts 4.12. The apostles picked up on that statement, nor is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so there's sort of this reaction, this objection. Well, truth, you know, do we really know that truth is singular? Or do we know that what if it's just truth is, you know, something to you that's different for me and different for this person? And, and so how do you respond to that kind of scenario, that kind of conversation about just the, the absolute nature of truth? And of course, I think all of us in this room would agree with the fact that truth is objective. Uh, truth is, uh, there, there's a, a, an objective nature to truth. In fact, truth by definition is very narrow. If you think about it, 4 plus 6 equals 10, not 11, not 12, not 13. One right answer, many wrong answers. Uh, there's one mascot for Montana State. It's the Bobcats. <laughs> there's not all these other ones. So one right answer, many wrong answers. And you can just multiply that throughout our culture, uh, whether it's regarding history or science or math. Uh, you know, by definition, truth is very narrow. And so I think you can at least establish that when you're having interactions with people about that. And then, you know, if they're still pushing you on the fact that, well, there's no moral right, whatever's right to you, uh, whatever's, you know, right to me, it doesn't matter. It could be different. And you could just maybe, you know, ask the question, well, in what situation is rape acceptable? I'm not sure you'll find people that come up with an answer to that question. Um, and so if, I guess what I'm saying is if you can establish that one moral truth, <laughs> that one absolute truth, and you could maybe establish a second one or a third one or a fourth one, and hopefully you'll be on your way to uh, pointing out the truthfulness of the Word of God and, 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 and in pre presenting who God is and the truths that are presented in Scripture. And so that's, that's a question that comes up from time to time. There's some other ones as well, but um, that was just one I thought I would touch on. So. Thanks, Pastor John. <clears throat>
<clears throat> Matt, what's the, mo the most difficult one that you hear? You know, Danny, I think the most difficult question I hear probably is, Matt, can you help me find a spouse? <laughs> uh, most of the time the answer is no, you're helpless or hopeless. Um, that being said, I'll try to answer it within the field of apologetics is what you're looking for, right? Okay. We'll leave that to uh, the dorm talks for how to find someone to date and marry. You know, I think Brian's answer and John's on the problem of evil is big. That comes up a lot in apologetics, but, and that's difficult to answer. Uh, another one, though, that you may encounter is what about people who have never heard the gospel, right? Is, that, is, that, is it just still for God to send them to hell? And again, I, I want to be careful not to make overstatements or oversimplify. I want to enter into that. It is uh, something that I still think about, and, and, you know, there's a sense in which the secret things belong to the Lord, and we know that which He's revealed, and we cling to that, but some things we're not going to resolve. That being said, I do think there's probably some presuppositions going into that question that we can help people with a little bit. And the first place I start is just even gospel basics 101. Who is God and who is man? Uh, studying that God is in complete control. He, he does everything he does is right. He's a perfect judge. He never errs. But then studying and developing with someone a biblical view of man, a biblical anthropology, that we are dead in sin that we have no right to anything good. Uh, we haven't earned any favors from God. Each of us has sinned, and because of that sin, James 2.10 says, even if you stumble at one point, you're guilty of the whole law, and thus you've earned your right to hell. I mean, I, I would hope that each one of us here uh, believes that and affirms that as a, a fundamental aspect of the gospel. Now, moving from that standpoint, then, if man is, is entirely void of any righteousness in and of himself... Um, you know, I, I think we, we have to break down that uh, false view that there's a good person out there, right? What about the, the good person out there who God sends to hell? There are no good people. Each one of us is sinful. Each one of us is uh, dead in our sin. And so that's the first step is just understanding, hey, none of us are good. All of us have, have sinned. All of us has gone, have gone astray. But then secondly, I think teaching on uh, the distinguishment between general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is what? Right, what God has revealed in creation and also in the conscience, Genesis chapter or Genesis, uh, sorry, Romans chapter one, verses eighteen to twenty. Uh, God says that He has clearly revealed Himself. Paul says about God, He's been clearly revealed, uh, so that man is without excuse. And yet, what do men do? They put that volleyball and try to hold the volleyball underwater, right? They try to suppress the truth. And so what's evident about God is made plain, but they suppress it. And then also God's given us the conscience, the consciousness of the law written on our hearts that every man or woman made knows right and wrong from an early age. And yet maybe it's their culture, their upbringing, their sinful tendencies. Uh, you start to numb the conscience over time, and again, you suppress that truth as well. So, so all of us have been given some measure of revelation. We've all been given something from God. And I just, I love the story. I, I think I first heard this connection from Pastor Brian, of the, the Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts chapter 8, he's traveling from Jerusalem down back to Ethiopia, and he's wondering in his mind, uh, I'm reading in Isaiah, and there's this suffering servant, and he's supposed to die. Can anyone help me with who this is? And what does God do? Well, he brings him a missionary. He brings Philip into the scene, and Philip explains to him, this is about Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom was killed and crucified, and he rose again. Believe, and the guy believes, and what does he do? There's water, so he says, hey, let me get baptized. And then as soon as he comes out, 
God transports Philip somewhere else. And so I think the point there is, is that when we respond to what God's already given us in faith, in humility, in obedience, uh, you might say, uh, in general re- revelation, I believe God will, he will get that person the necessary special revelation to bring them to a saving faith. If you are seeking God in humility and believing what you know about God and what God's given you, uh, there's, there's other examples as well of God bringing that person the gospel. And so this would apply to the, to the African today or to the uh, person in Asia today or Australia or wherever they may be, is that God is bringing his word all over and he's bringing it to people who are seeking him. And so that, that's how I would maybe answer that. Brian, would you want to yeah. clarify or add to that? No, the only comment I would add is that I, I, I think you, and I think you can, young people, you can confidently say to anyone who voices that objection, well, what about the person who's never heard, da 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 you can, you can confidently say, no human being will ever stand before God and be able to say, God, I would have believed in you if you would have just given me the evidence. This, that will never happen. And so even in your own mind, because in your own mind and heart, you may wrestle with this and think, well, okay, I know the Bible's true. I know the gospel's the only way, Jesus. But I still wonder about the aborigine, you know, over in wherever, Australia or the, the, the guy in the bush in, you know, South, South America. What, you, know, you, you know, in a moment of honesty, you might say, yeah, but it does seem a little bit unfair. I, got, I grew up where I could hear the gospel all the time, but they don't have a chance. Well, it's true that they don't have the exposure that, that we have. But again, based on Acts 8, Acts 10, Cornelius, I mean, just work your way through that story. God had to move heaven and earth to get the gospel to Cornelius. He had to give Peter three visions of a sheet let down from heaven with all these animals in it to convince Peter to even go to a Gentile. Now think about this, gang. Peter, an apostle, had to be convinced to take the gospel to someone. He didn't want to do it because it was a Gentile. So God had to work in Peter's heart. Plus, an angel gave Cornelius a vision and said, send for this man, Peter, and get him. So the point is this. If you look at all that took place in Acts 10, God's moving heaven and earth to get the gospel to one man and his family. Because, again, Matt said it well. God will always meet a genuinely seeking heart, whether that person's in obscure Russia where there's atheism and he's never heard the gospel, or if he's an aborigine or he's in the jungle somewhere Anyone who responds to general revelation looks at creation and says, there has to be a God. I want to know him. God has no problem getting the message to that person. So don't allow yourself to be tied up in knots over this or wrapped around the axle. And don't let someone tie you up in knots over this thinking that there's going to be a scenario someday where someone stands before God and is just sad that they never had a chance. And that's the only reason they're going to hell. That will never happen. Before we come to kind of general questions and, and answers here, John, anything to add to what's been said? No, no. Okay. All right. That was awesome. Thank you guys for, for answering those questions and bringing all the, the years of experience that you have together on those. We, let's, let's spend the, the last uh, 10 minutes or so here uh, opening it up to, to general Q&A. Does anybody have a question right off the bat? Yeah, Stephen. Again, the questions are apologetic-oriented, Yeah. How do you answer um, if somebody somebody claims that God is is evil and points to the conquest of Canaan specifically uh, and says that God ordered the murder of women and children and every every man 
um, warrior or not? How would you respond to that accusation? Yeah, yeah John and Matt have really good answers on that one. So go ahead. <laughs> uh, th this is my response on that, Stephen. I just say this. One, we have to remember if this person's pushing on that, you know, are you sincere in this or are you just trying to, because if you're really sincerely wrestling with it, I get that. So then if you are, then let's start here. Number one, we don't have all the facts. So be careful about judging God based on just an incomplete information. Yes, God did do that. God said to do that. But we don't have all the facts of why maybe God would have done that. Second thing I say is what facts we do have are really startling. We know that that was the vilest culture you could ever imagine. Uh, the, the Israelites, once they moved in there, when they didn't wipe out the people, one of the, one of the things they adopted from them, one of the practices, was taking their babies and offering them in the fire to the god, Molech or whoever. So that's the kind of thing that went on in that culture, to have babies so you could slaughter them and offer them in the fire, which... When God talks about his own people, Israel, doing that, he makes a, a, a quite a startling statement through the prophet. He said, that never entered my mind. That is so horrendous. That would never enter my mind. But that was common practice among the Canaanites. So the point is the Canaanite culture, the Canaanite religion, the Canaanite people were so, so horrendously sinful and vile, God wanted it all wiped out. Now, someone says, yeah, but what about the babies? Think about it this way. If you believe what I do believe the Bible teaches, and that is little ones go to be with the Lord, uh, based on several passages, which we don't have time to go into now, but think about the fact that in the book of Revelation, it says there will be people in, in heaven from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people. How are anybody? How would anybody get to heaven from the Canaanite culture? They wouldn't. The only way they're going to get there is if they die in infancy. And so, in a sense, now I would not in any way want this to be taken wrongly or, you know, to advocate killing little ones. or There's no, not, no excuse or rationale for that. But God having his people go in and wipe out the entire population if, in fact, little ones go to heaven. Little ones who, had they had the opportunity to grow up in that culture, would go to hell. But God graciously brings them to heaven. So I just say, again, remember, we don't have all the facts. We don't know all of it. But what we do know is that it was horrendous beyond our imagination, what that culture was characterized by, what they did, how they lived. And therefore, we can understand this even from a human standpoint. You go to the doctor, and they say, you know, uh, you, have, you have a cancerous tumor in your abdomen. Uh, and the doctor says, well, you know, we can go in and cut a little bit of it out. Or, but if we really go after it, it's going to be pretty painful. And it's going to, what are you going to say? You're not going to say, well, take your chances. Go after it. Get the whole thing. Cut it all out. Get it because this is life and death. And so in a similar way, God was saying to his people, this is about life and death, your life, your death, your spiritual life and death, your future. You leave the people in there, you're going to adopt their practices. So when you go in, I want you to completely wipe them out. So I don't think we need to back away from that. That is, in fact, what God said. And God has way more information than we have. God knows what he's doing. We don't have all the information. What we do have gives us at least some, some awareness of why God may have done that. And so... When we get to heaven, we'll maybe find out more of the answer, but that's, that's the way I typically answer. Great. Brian, can I jump in and add a yeah, couple yeah. notes there? Uh, 
in, in line with what he just said, in 1 Kings 11, 1 to 3, culminating in verse 3, you have this phrase where it says, Solomon's wives turned his heart away from God. I think that's a perfect example of maybe they would say, well, well, why not only the men? Why not just kill the men and leave the women and children? Well, listen, if you're a little kid and you're five years old and you see another people come in and murder your father, do you think you're going to hold on to that for a while? Yeah, it's, so it's, it's the simple fact of what Brian just said. You, you kind of have to remove the entire cancer. The second thing, though, is I would say is going back to general revelation, not only did they have revelation of God in creation, but even the Canaanites draw their, their heritage back to Noah. Uh, it would be really surprising if there weren't traditional uh, campfire talk stories passed on about the flood, the flood that God caused, and how his people now were this group of people named the Hebrews traveling around. And so, again, they, they had rejected God. Um, yeah, that's all out of that. John, anything else? No, no, good. Another question, guys? <clears throat> Chandler. This question is related to Pastor Matt's statement on um, whether when you present Jesus as liar, lunatic, or Lord, what do you say uh, to somebody who you present that to and they um, then turn around and say, well, he was a liar or he was a lunatic? Good question. Um, That's where I would bring in my apologetics of the resurrection. And I would go to 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, Paul basically admits... If, if Jesus didn't raise from the, rise from the dead, then we are all lunatics. We are, above all men, are most to be pitied. And so I would, I would take them to the resurrection, uh, maybe even spending time in the later chapters of Matthew's gospel, looking at just even the events of the resurrection, the fact that they had a Roman guard around it, that it was sealed. Uh, like Pastor John said, uh, women were the first there. The tomb was empty. Uh, the text records that hundreds of souls were resurrected and appeared in Jerusalem. All these events that even can be historically, I think, to some degree validated, uh, I would take, bring those in and say, uh, I don't think the lunatic or liar options are still tenable in light of what went on at the resurrection. Yeah, and building on that, I, I agree with Matt, the starting point, we start with Scripture. But there, there, is, uh, there is a lot of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, even outside the Bible. So if they say, well, you're using a circular argument, you know, we don't have anything else in history. These are just biased men writing this stuff. Oh, no, that's not really true. That's not. Now, again, you have to do your homework in apologetics to to get that information. But uh, if they if they do land there, well, he was a liar. Well, uh, he's the only liar that was ever raised from the dead. Uh, And there's ample evidence in Scripture and outside of Scripture. So that's, I think, where you would go with that. Because you you know this, gang. The resurrection is the issue. I mean, it's the issue that separates Christianity from everything else. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Muhammad didn't rise from the dead or never even claimed he was going to rise from the dead. Buddha, Krishna, uh, Gandhi, just go, go down the list of all great spiritual leaders. Jesus basically said this. I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said this. If I'm not raised from the dead, don't believe anything I ever said. I think that's fair. If, if, I don't, if I'm not raised from the dead, then, then just discard me. And so he, he, put, he put everything on that, that event. So it, we would do well to know what the Bible teaches about the resurrection, both in the Gospels and in the letters, and even what other historical sources do say about the resurrection. So good, very good questions. Pastor John, anything? No, other than the fact that, you know, you can also, in the process of sharing 
that information, they could still arrive at the same conclusion. So I don't know if it's on the front of the conversation or at the very end, they're saying Jesus is a liar. And if that's the case, then I think you can, with a clear conscience, do what Jesus did with the rich young ruler. He came running up to Jesus looking for life. Jesus laid everything out he needed to know to respond in faith. And he walked away sorrowful. Interestingly, Jesus didn't go running after him. He, he let him walk away. And so, um, and so I think you could you know, come up with these substantive reasons, uh, and, and we should work hard at that. First Peter 3 talks about that, uh, but also at the end of the conversation, just say, hey, I, you know, if they're still saying Jesus is a liar, then there may be other issues at stake than maybe that honest question of them really wanting to know the truth, and, and so you, you may need to probe on, on those other areas or, or may need to just graciously allow them to walk away, so that's, that's not always easy to do. Uh, and we can beat ourselves up in those situations. But again, I was thinking back to Mark 10 where Jesus laid everything out. And uh, he says, one thing you lack, you sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come and follow me. And he walked away sorrowful. And Jesus turned around and gave a lesson to his men and, and allowed him to walk away. So just sort of that, another little perspective there on those conversations. Well, and, and again, John, I mean, I've known some liars and I've known a few crazy people, but none of them could walk on water. Right. None of them could feed 5,000 people or 4,000 right. people, just the men even, right. out of a few loaves and a couple of fish. So, again, the miracles, and not just attested by one author, but what's the confirmation of the Old Testament for a prophet, right? Two or three witnesses. We have four witnesses, three of which are parallel accounts. So uh, I think, yeah, I, w- I would want to graciously, gently just reason through that with them. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and this story of the rich young ruler, let's not forget, it's in the three synoptic gospels, all three. Mark does add one note that is good for us to remember. It says, and Jesus looking at him, loved him. So we don't want to be harsh with unbelievers. Now, they may be, again, they may be uh, not sincere in their questions. They're just trying to build a straw man so they can tear it down. But but again, coming back to the point, we should, John's verse, 1 Peter 3 that he mentioned, be, be ready to give an answer uh, and, and be equipped to do that um, and, and be able to discern, you know, this person's not really asking a legitimate question. They're, they're just trying to find excuses for their unbelief. You can, you can probably ascertain that sometimes, but it still doesn't, I mean, Jesus knew the rich young ruler really didn't want to know how to have eternal life, or maybe he just wanted to know if he could get, have it and keep everything else himself. But he still loved him. So let's not not love people who are even in that category who maybe are trying to just, you know, throw up a smoke screen to excuse their unbelief. Man, what a privilege it is to get to hear you on these issues. And, and uh, yeah, we just as a student body want to thank you. So let's thank them, guys, for spending their time with us. <laughs> Pastor Brian, would you, <clears throat> would you close us in prayer? Yeah, you bet. be glad to. Father... Thanks for the time here. Thank you for these students and uh, just the the opportunity they're having just to be equipped in the classes here at NBC, in the chapels, in the discipleship, so many different avenues. And Lord, uh, I know you have uh, a desire to use them now and also in the future. And uh, this this one arena we've been talking about is so significant because uh, we can't we can't live in this day and age in our world without these kinds of questions coming our way. And I'm sure many of these students, maybe all of them, have had these kinds of questions already. If not, then certainly they will in the future. So uh, help them to see the value of the education they're receiving so that they can do what what 1 Peter 3 tells all of us to do, and that is to be ready with an answer, uh, to be able to give an answer. 
And as we do so, may we be able to do so as Jesus did the rich young ruler uh, with love and compassion for people uh, brokenhearted over their lostness, and e- even if it's a, a defiant lostness that they're just trying to excuse and and throw up a, a smoke screen to to uh, hide behind because they want to be willful in their unbelief. I mean, that not in any way diminish our love for them, but maybe even increase our uh, compassion and brokenheartedness for for being that hard-hearted. So uh, use us as as you see fit. And uh, continue to sharpen us to be your servants, to represent the Lord Jesus Christ well in the midst of, as Paul says, a, a crooked and perverse generation among whom we shine as lights in the world. We pray in the matchless name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.